electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, everybody. This week, I was in Las Vegas for Amazon's annual cloud event, AWS reInvent. Amazon, of course, is the number one company in the cloud uh, in this race with Microsoft and Google and IBM and others. But I went out there, as I do every year, to have a sit-down conversation with the CEO of AWS, Andy Jassy. Now, Andy's the guy who actually pitched the idea for the cloud business to Jeff Bezos about 20 years ago. He's still running it today. It's a multi-billion dollar, $36 billion enterprise company, about $10 billion in profit and still growing. Anyway, we, we sat down as we typically do at this time of year to talk about what's next for the cloud, technology innovation. There's a lot more to talk about. I mean, uh, Amazon had this massive cloud contract it was gunning for from the Department of Defense, the Jedi contract. It's a $10 billion contract. They lost it to Microsoft. Amazon's cried foul. They're going to sue. Uh, we talked about that. It's his first comments on camera, on tape, that you can hear him talking about the problem that they had with that contract process. Well, welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort this week at the New York Stock Exchange, but what I'm going to deliver to you is this conversation, this sit-down with AWS CEO Andy Jassy. Here it is. Andy, uh, thanks for doing this annual thing we do. At yeah, I enjoy it, John. Yeah, me too. Um, let's talk an update about what's going on with AWS. I mean, I, I believe I have a decent sense of the overall numbers. You're going at a rate where you're going to be, what, around $35 billion in revenue uh, for, for 2019. Looks like profit, depending on how you measure it, uh, over $10 billion. How's it going with customers, number of customers, uh, size of customers? Yeah. Well, the business is, uh, in the last financials we released, it's a $36 billion revenue run rate business. It's growing Six. about 35% year over yeah. year. And we have millions of active customers. We consider an active customer a non-Amazon entity that's used the platform in the last 30 days. And it's every imaginable type of customer and size of customer. So really, since the start of AWS, most of the successful startups have built their businesses from scratch on top of AWS. These are companies like Pinterest and Slack and um, Airbnb and Instagram and Domo and Stripe. Mm -hmm. But what's happened over the last few years is that the enterprise and public sector have very dramatically adopted AWS in the cloud. And you see usage in every imaginable vertical business segment. So financial services, Capital One and Goldman Sachs and HSBC and Barclays and Intuit. Healthcare, you have Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb and Cerner in energy, it's you know Shell and BP and Hess, in manufacturing, GE and Schneider Electric and Siemens and Philips, every imaginable vertical segment now is using AWS in a meaningful way. And the public sector too, where we have about 7,000 government agencies worldwide using AWS. So it's a very broad and distributed customer base. And we're at a time right now where you're seeing, you know, I think I've said the last couple of years, 
this is true, and I, I think it's still true, which is we're in the early stages of the meat of enterprise and public sector adoption in the U.S., and I would say outside the U.S., we're about 12 to 36 months behind the U.S.'s schedule, depending on the industry and the country. So 12 to 36. So, so you're saying a year or two behind what's happening in the U.S. Exactly. Is what's happening outside. Exactly. So we're at the beginning of this giant titanic shift to the cloud that you know we're still in the relatively early stages of. It feels like it's a lot more about big game hunting now than it was a couple years ago. Uh, announcements about really big contracts, really big customers migrating to the cloud. You guys and Microsoft in particular, now Google's jumping in every now and then too saying, hey, look who we got, here's what we're doing for them. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think it's true, but I think um, like always with the adoption of new technology, it happens in different ways. So um, lots of times the way the companies get started is they have a developer or a development team or an engineering leader or a line of business leader who's been so frustrated about something they've wanted to build for such a long time on premises and it's just been too expensive or too time consuming or lots of no's they get internally that find AWS and say, I'm gonna do this in a weekend. And mm -hmm. they do it in a weekend and they come back to work and say, look what I did. And it totally opens up the floodgates for that company deciding to use the cloud. But you know, increasingly, we're at a stage in the enterprise adoption, as we've gotten into the mainstream enterprises, where they're making these very thoughtful, methodical, multi-year transformations. And so you know, we're, as I said earlier, with the early stages of that meat of adoption, but you're just seeing more and more big companies who are making their approach to the cloud, and that's why you're hearing some of those announcements. Now, I ask you this every year, uh, mm -hmm. and you give me the same answer every year, but I gotta ask, because sometimes things change. Is Amazon going to spin out AWS in 2020? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I, you know, I, I, would, uh, I would be shocked if that was the case. And you know what? I, I think what I tell you every year is that I would never say never about anything. Um, having been at Amazon for almost 23 years and been a part of, of so many things I would have never predicted, I'll never say never, but... There just isn't much need or incentive to do so. Typically, companies spin out units if they don't want them on their financial statements or if they need the money to fund the growth of the new unit. And neither of those are the case for AWS. And I also think that customers shouldn't really want us to spin out AWS just because what customers really want from us is they want more features, more capabilities, more services, things that allow them to move their customer experiences forward as opposed to if we spun out having to think about doing analyst calls and building a new HR system and things like as that. As lovely as those things are. All sound very lovely. <laughs> I think it's more investors, though, who, who would salivate at the thought of AWS being valued on its own mm. and the currency that that would allow for buying other things. Is there any value in that? Again, we don't think of it that way. You know, we're, uh, we're pretty famous for being willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. And we're trying to build value for our customers and, uh, you know, and, and a business that outlives all of us here. And so we think about um, how we build the company and how we evolve the company over many decades as opposed to any one you know, quarter or year. Mm. There's some projections out there. Goldman Sachs had one a, a few weeks back saying that in 2020 is going to be trouble in enterprise hardware, in part because of macro uncertainty. Do you see that? Uh, I, you know, I don't see it as it relates to our business. Uh, you know, we, we, 
Hardware is a piece of our business. As you know, we have our, our services that stitch together infrastructure, software, hardware, and data center services globally. And so um, we, you know, we think that even if the overall market, for whatever reason, uh, and I'll say the overall technology market or broader market has some type of issue, we're still at these early stages of this huge shift from on-premises to the cloud that I think that we're gonna, you know, there's a lot of growth in front of us and in front of um, all of the players who are pursuing infrastructure cloud computing. And that's what I wonder. Are, are maybe you part of the cause <laughs> of some kind of a hardware session in the enter- recession in the enterprise if that's happening? I mean, I know people talk about global uncertainty and, and you know, maybe CEOs don't want to make this big upfront capital commitment uh, given trade and those sorts of things, but also at the same time, you guys are gaining share, are you not? I, you know, I don't think that the, um, the significant adoption of AWS in the cloud is diminishing the overall usage of hardware. I mean, in fact, mm-hmm. I think if you look at almost every innovation in our history and technology, every time there's an innovation, people assume that you're going to do less. But I remember when, um, uh, you know, when the phone came around, people said, oh, people will get so much more done, they'll do less work. And of course, what happens is, when you have these big innovations, um, you may spend less time or less money per unit on, that, on each piece of that innovation. Or in the case of hardware, you may spend less per unit of hardware. But companies get that work done and then move on to the list they've had, which are two or three years long of additional things they want to do because it's so much easier and so much more cost effective to get that work done. So I think that um, with the advent of the cloud and how, much, how fast people are moving, it may shift where people are consuming hardware, but I don't think it diminishes the overall use of hardware. It lowers the cost per unit for people using hardware, but they will find all kinds of things and are finding all kinds of things to do that they'd always wanted to do but had been unachievable in the past. Mm. I want to talk about Jedi. Mm-hmm. Multi-billion dollar contract uh, the Defense Department. I remember where I was when I found out that it went to Microsoft, in line for an elementary school Halloween dance and on a Friday night. I said, what? R- really? That, where were you when you found out they announced? How does it work? Yeah? Yeah. And what did you think? Well, you know, I think we obviously don't believe that Jedi was adjudicated fairly. I think that uh, anybody who does a detailed apples-to-apples comparison of the platforms don't come out in the same spot that that procurement did. And most of our customers tell us we're about a couple years ahead of anybody else with regard to functionality and maturity. But, you know, there was significant political interference here. And when you have a sitting president who's willing to be very vocal that they dislike a company and the CEO of that company, it makes it difficult for government agencies, including the DOD, to make objective decisions without fear of reprisal. And I think that's dangerous and risky for our country. So is your position that it's impossible that Microsoft won this fair and square, or just that there are real questions, given the president's comments and arguably interference in this process about whether it could have been fair? I think that if you look at the details of it, which um, you know, I, I obviously know the details of it a little bit differently than other people, but it's just hard to, very, very difficult to look at the, um, to look at the comparison objectively and come out the way that the DOD did. And what kinds of details are you talking about? Just, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty aware of the, um, 
respective components and features and capabilities and um, what the requirements were um, uh, in JEDI. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's quite difficult to end up making that decision that they did uh, in a fair and objective way. Now, tell me and, and tell the viewers, I think this is important, big picture why this matters when it comes to a country like the United States, a process like military contracts, why is this fundamentally important? Well, you know, I think that the security of the United States, the national security of the United States is, you know, quite important, not just to the U.S., but to the world as a whole. And when you have to make, um, when you have to do work to modernize your technology capabilities as the DOD does, you, you need the best possible technology platform to build what you need to build on top of. And I think that not just for um, the national security of the country, but also if you think about the thousands of decisions that we have to make across our government that are really important for our country, those decisions have to be made on objective criteria and be free of political interference or, you know, we, you know we're not going to make the right decisions for the country. So did you know as soon as this decision came down that you guys were going to take this to court? Not the second that we heard the decision. You know, like anything, you have to look at the details and you have to, um, you have to understand what the rationale was. And there was a, a lot of data that, um, you know, in any one of these procurements that you get after the decision was made. But after we look at the data um, carefully, there was really little question. It's, you know, I think we have to shine a light on what happened here. How much is Jeff a part of that process? Because he certainly was a central part uh, of the issue, it seems, as far as the president was concerned and talking about Amazon and, and the possibility that that really did influence this process. Like everything uh, at Amazon, you know, um, Jeff is aware of what's going on and has uh, a say in what's going on and, um, you know, and is supportive of the decision we made. Um, I want to move on. Uh, several months ago, you guys announced that you wanted to build in effect, a second headquarters, a major location mm. in the New York area. That didn't work out. Uh, you ended up backing away from that. You're still going forward uh, in the D.C. area, Northern Virginia, building out that facility. What are the lessons learned? How is that process going? Do you have enough capacity in Northern Virginia from what you continue to, to cobble together in New York to build out what you feel you need to? We're super excited about what we're doing uh, in Northern Virginia, and um, the, you know, the community there has been fantastic in the way it's welcomed Amazon. And we have, you know, we've had a significant number of people in the Virginia uh, area. We have a big public sector business that Teresa Carlson runs in AWS. Um, and we have a number of folks there for our data security team and for our networking team and our computing team. So we've had a number of people in the Virginia, D.C. area for a while, but it's a, you know, it's a fantastic place to live. It's, um, there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of diversity there. And uh, since we've announced our HQ2 there, we have grown pretty significantly already, and I expect this to continue to grow substantially over time there. Has your process changed in how you think about engaging with communities when you're looking to expand in a place as a result either of, of what you learned positively in Virginia or, or negatively in New York? I, you know, I don't know if it's so much of a change of approach. Um, you know, I think that, 
we were excited about both Virginia and New York, and um, we approached them relatively similarly, and um, you know, with some subtleties and nuances in, in, in the different cities, and they just had different reactions, and, and um, you know, there was I think there are some things that changed, um, uh, you know, from the time that we had made the decisions to the time we announced it in New York, that you know, that that made it harder to be there, and if you're if you're going to do something like build a second headquarters, which is takes a lot of effort and time. Now, you know, if you're in a place where it feels like the community isn't as excited about your being there, you're you're better off starting, you know, in, in a positive spot. And so, we found that in Virginia, we found that in Nashville. And you know, the other thing to realize is that even though that we have chosen uh, Northern Virginia as a second headquarters of building kind of a our most significant second presence to what we have in Seattle. We have a lot of people all over the country and all over the world. I mean, we already have about 5,000 people in New York that will continue to grow. We have mm-hmm. a lot of people in Boston and Vancouver and you know, in lots of places around the country that will continue to grow as well. And I think whether you have uh, 100 or 200 people in an area or 1,000 people or 5,000 people or 25,000 people, it's actually, it's just good business to be a part of the community. It makes your employees feel better about working there, and, and we want to be a part of the community in which we work. So we're trying to do that across a lot of cities and communities, and you know, each of them have their own um, different characteristics, and, and we'll receive you differently. It, it occurs to me that when Amazon puts a logistics facility or warehouse somewhere, some people say, well, these are lower-wage jobs, we really want the white-collar jobs. Uh, we want those two. Let's go after those. Sometimes now it seems when you plan a major uh, HQ2 facility, some people say, oh, well, they're going to gentrify. They're going to bring in people from outside who didn't live here before and push uh, the, the current population out. We don't want that. How do you thread the needle? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I think if you look at what we've done in our fulfillment centers and, and really in all the places that we operate, I think that the $15 minimum wage was a huge thing for employees everywhere. And, you know, we, we really believe in um, that $15 minimum wage and, and encourage and wish that others would do the same thing. I think it's really important that we give people who are doing those types of jobs and, um, an opportunity to, to make a decent living and, and, and be able to earn and provide a good quality of life for their family, and, and also to be able to have opportunities to keep furthering their education as we do in our fulfillment centers as well. You know, I, I, look, I, I think that uh, when we start to grow and we have a lot of employees in different areas, we create a lot of jobs. And we have created, I mean, we have about 650,000 people that work at Amazon at this point. That's a lot of jobs. And if you think about all the sellers who sell on Amazon, that's about another 900,000 jobs. And if you think about all the startups and businesses that we've enabled from scratch in AWS, I mean, those, we have created a lot of jobs, directly created a lot of jobs um, with the, um, the businesses that we've built and that are growing. And, and then in each of those communities, we create a lot of other jobs in the service communities. So, you know, contractors and builders and plumbers and electricians and hairstylists and restaurants. And so I think in the communities in which we have um, uh, grown, we have added quite a bit in those communities with respect to job creation. And then if you look at the employees at Amazon, and, and you can look at it in Seattle, and you can look at it in, in um, Virginia, D.C. area, you can look at it in Boston, you can look at it in New York. 
our employees are very deeply involved in the community and involved in, in various um, important causes around homelessness and education and disaster relief and things of that sort. So I think that, um, you know, I think we have done a lot of good for a lot of communities and I think we can, you know, we will still continue to grow and evolve and, um, you know, and, and try to innovate in our in, uh, involvement in the community as well. But I think we've been good for most communities. What needs to happen in the U.S. to make sure you have the educated technical workforce that you need to continue to grow? And is Amazon making specific investments along those lines in, in some yeah. of the communities where you operate? Well, it's a good question, and we just can't find enough um, uh, technology um, candidates for the growth that we have. And we're probably not alone. There are a lot of technology companies that will hire as many eligible, strong technologists as they can find. And so, so what do you do in this era where it's harder to get yeah. immigrants in to fill those jobs? Do you have to place more facilities overseas? I think it's, a, it's several things. You know, I think uh, we have offices all over the world. You know, we have uh, offices in Canada, but we have offices in Ireland and in Germany and in the Netherlands and Indi India and China. And so I think you do end up having talent that you, um, you locate, pools of talent in various places. I think, though, that one of the things we've tried to do is really invest in programs that help universities and, and um, two-year programs be able to um, educate and graduate more technologists. And mm -hmm. so we, um, you know, we have something called AWS Educate where we develop cloud, uh, cloud computing curriculum for um, universities and schools that otherwise um, wouldn't want to have to create it from scratch so they can actually be educating more people in cloud computing. We do the same thing on the machine learning side. And you know, we've built this cloud degree um, that we have worked with a number of four-year universities and two-year schools to allow people to take concentrated courses that give them this foundation in cloud computing, which is really the way that almost all the applications are going to be built in the future and all the new ones are being built today. And that is also helping more people emerge from school with that background that's useful to get a job at a technology company. In the cloud era, are there relatively more or fewer opportunities for your two-year student? I to, think to really more. More. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that... Because I, I think we're missing it then as a country because I'm not sure I hear enough about that as a potential path that doesn't leave people mired in debt and can lead to decent salary. Yeah, I think that we... Um, there's a big transformation happening in these two-year schools, and um, I think that their, their understanding that the appetite from companies for technologists presents them with a unique opportunity to build programs and degrees that will allow people for a lot less money to get a practical education that lets them get a good job. And mm -hmm. we've, um, we've partnered in Virginia, and we've partnered in Kentucky, and we've partnered in California, and we're actually we're building these cloud degree partnerships with a, a number of states in their two-year um, school programs. And I think it actually, I don't know, it, it's, I, I'm very happy that my kids are, are are going to four-year colleges and getting liberal arts degrees, but it's it's a luxury. It, it's expensive, and uh, and you know while I think it's a great, well-rounded program, it doesn't necessarily directly equip you for jobs right when you get out of school. And mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if you fast forward 10 to 20 years from now, 
if we'll be able to afford having all of the four-year schools we have today, I think you're going to see this rise of these two-year schools that are focused in particular disciplines that equip people for less money and less time to get real jobs in the, in the, in the real world where the opportunities are. Take the global competition uh, conversation to a slightly different perspective and lens. How concerned are you about Chinese equipment um, within Amazon's stack within the cloud. Uh, how legitimate are the concerns about uh, Chinese influence on companies based there that are trying to get equipment placed around the world with various types of companies? Yeah. Well, I think companies have to be very thoughtful about um, what software they use and what equipment they use um, everywhere. And by the way, it's, it's not just China. There are lots of places where you have to be really thoughtful about it. Um, we don't really use Chinese equipment um, uh, or software, but... Um, Why is that? We just, you know, over time, uh, you know, almost all the software that we use, we've built ourselves. Um, and, uh, you know, even in the network, um, you know, we work with some players like Cisco, but we, we've also built a number of our own routers. We, over time, for, for scale and for cost reasons, um, we've had to um, develop a lot of our own equipment. And, and same thing, on, you know, we design our own hardware, we design our own chips at this point and build our own chips. And so, um, but I would also say that, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, anything that we bring into our facilities, regardless of which country it comes from, we have a very um, rigorous and detailed and careful process to inspect. And you have to do all kinds of testing to make sure that, that what you're getting is what you think you're getting. And, and Andy, that, that's yeah. what I wonder, because so much of this conversation around Chinese equipment and Chinese technology, I think, and I think you alluded to this, you need to protect against everything and everyone everywhere, right? And, and shouldn't there be a way, an objective way, of testing technology and testing equipment to make sure it's safe? Otherwise, if we're just looking at one particular country and deciding, well, they're the problem, well, there are a couple of countries over there that maybe could slip something bad into the network where you're not looking. Yeah, I think, again, there's, I mean, it's kind of like, it's like software testing, it's any quality testing, there are lots of standard ways that you can test, but there are also lots of things you have to guard against. And so there isn't just one set of 10 tests that you can run and, and, and say you're good. You, you have to have a very full um, and, and robust set of tests that you're running all the time on your software and on your hardware. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think, look, I mean, I think there are, there are certain countries where you see more of this espionage type of behavior. Um, and you have to be thoughtful if you're going to consume products or parts from those countries. But it's also true that if you have the right set of tests and, and if you're really diligent and rigorous about it, you, you can test and make sure you don't have a problem. And you feel confident that you're doing that. Yeah. And the AWS side and the Amazon side, yes. Let's talk about some of the news that you guys are making here this week. Um, one of the things you're doing wavelength involves putting AWS equipment closer to the, the folks who are consuming it. What's the benefit that we're going to see from that? Well, I think if you, um, more and more companies are, um, have these connected devices all over the place at the edge, um, that they... When we say the edge, we, we mean... Edge could be in the, your house, it could in be your in your home, office, your computer, it could be in the oil fields, phone, it can be your, in the agricultural fields, it right. can be in cars or planes or ships, it, you know, really everywhere. There are... <laughs> 
already many millions of devices at the edge, and there will be billions of devices in the next 10 years everywhere. And those devices, um, you know, they have relatively little CPU and disk, but they have all this really valuable information um, that people want to um, take advantage of. And they're, you know, the way that they interact very often is they're connected to the cellular network. And if you think about um, the usual, if you, know, you want to do something really interesting and take advantage of something like 5G, which is so much faster than, than 4G, um, you know, a lot of what you want to take advantage of, of 5G with are applications at that last mile that give you sing, single-digit millisecond latency. Mm -hmm. And so, if you, you know, but those applications, to do what they want to do, they need compute and they need storage. And typically what they do is they reach out to AWS and the cloud to get it. But to get there from a, from a device, you have to go from the device to the cell tower, to the metro aggregation uh, uh, tower, to the regional aggregation tower, to the internet, and then to AWS, and then back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the um, applications people want to use in conjunction with 5G, so these are things like machine learning at the edge, or autonomous manufacturing, or smart cars, or cities, or um, you know, augmented or virtual reality, they can't afford that latency of that round trip to and from the cloud. So You'd be at a performance disadvantage. Yeah, they, they won't if, get the response rate that yeah. they want. Um, it won't be worth it. And so what they really want is they want AWS, which they use everywhere else, but to be embedded at the 5G towers. So what we've done with Wavelength is we've built a service where we embed AWS compute and storage and database and analytics at the 5G towers. And so that means now you only go from the device to the metro aggregation uh, site, which is where the 5G tower is, um, where AWS is embedded there, and you get AWS there. So it totally changes the response rates and the latency and what you can get done. And, you know, if you think about it, if you were a company wanting to do this on your own, like you can't just call up a telco and say, can I co-locate at your 5G site? And then if you have an application that works across lots of geographies, no one telco serves all those geographies. So then you'd have to call all the telcos and ask them that. And then you'd need some kind of interface that helped you negotiate the different ways that you'd have to do it with each telco. And, you know, and, and, uh, and then you'd want to be able to do that with the same tools that you're using to use AWS with your applications that you want these devices to connect to. And so with Wavelength, we've built a service that takes care of all of that. It, you know, our very first partner is Verizon, um, but we'll also um, launch with KDDI and with SK Telecom and with Vodafone. And Are these exclusive in the regions where these players operate? So are you going to do, can you do Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile and, and, and? I think over time we will have multiple providers in every region just because all of us want to have the type of seamless experience for customers that whoever they're using on their cell network, they can be able to use Wavelength. And so we'll have, you know, we have that partnership initially with those, but there'll be others. And um, it abstracts away all the work that a customer would have to do to try to figure out how to get into each of these telcos. It, make, it provides a common format, and then it makes it simple for them to use the same AWS APIs and control plane and tools um, for their wavelength applications along with the way they connect with the rest of their applications in other AWS regions. A couple of years ago, you, you guys announced Snowball where people can get a piece of hardware from you, offload their data onto it, and then send it to the cloud. Uh, last year, I believe it was, you announced Outposts where yeah. you know, AWS compute resources. They don't have to be way out there in your cloud. Uh, people can bring them closer on-premise and, and interact with your cloud in kind of a hybrid fashion. How much of that 
is about you making it easier for these big customers to move to the cloud because they're just not prepared to take a big leap. I think what it's really trying to do is break through barriers um, that have stopped enterprises who are trying to make their broad plan to the cloud because they couldn't figure out how to move every last workload. And so, you know, if you, if you think about Outpost, which we announced uh, in my keynote at reInvent last year, and, and, and we, um, you know, just announced the general availability of it um, this year, um, that was for customers who said, look, I'm moving most of my workloads to AWS and to the cloud, but I have certain workloads that can't move for a while because they have to be close to something. Maybe they have to be close to a factory. But I, I want all the AWS tools and control plane and, and capabilities here to connect with the rest of my applications you know, in AWS's public regions, but I, I need some workloads to run here. And so Outpost provided racks of um, servers um, that have uh, compute, AWS compute and storage and database and analytics and machine learning there so that for those workloads that must live in their on-premises data center, they can run them there with all the same tools and capabilities they're used to using in AWS. Mm -hmm. Then well, we had, what percentage of your customers are using that? Well, we just, uh, we just uh, announced the general availability of it. So okay. we have a, you know, over the last year since we've announced it, we've had a very large number of customers who've been excited about it. And you know, we've given some customers um, access to it early and they've been using it. And these are companies like Volkswagen, Lockheed Martin. And so uh, uh, we have, we believe that a very large number of enterprises are going to use this as a way to bridge the existing workloads that have to remain on-premises in their on-premises data center for a while with the rest of what they're doing in AWS. And it really kind of, um, it, it, it unleashes the rest of their migration plan because they know what they're going to do with this one important workload and how it'll interact with the rest of what they're moving in the cloud. We've also, interestingly, people said, well, that's awesome that you guys now let us run some workloads on-premises um, with AWS. But we have people who say, look, I have end users at the company in certain geographic cities where um, they need single-digit millisecond latency, and I don't have a data center there, or I have a small data center, but I really don't want a data center there. And mm. what can you do for me there? And you, these are, you can imagine examples like in Los Angeles, um, film production companies or, or um, graphics companies or video game providers. Um, or in New York or Switzerland, you know, financial services companies where they need this single-digit millisecond latency to either what they're creating or to markets or things like that. And so that actually was a really interesting problem we saw, thought about because you know, initially we said, okay, they'll just use outposts, but they don't have data centers and they don't want data centers. Um, so they have no place to house the outposts. But we actually realized that you know, one of the things that we do in AWS, is, which has been a core tenet since the start of the business, is we think about what we build as these low-level, highly flexible building blocks that you can build on top of. So if you think about S3, which is our object storage service, or EC2, which is a compute service, there are so many AWS services that use S3 and EC2 as components because they're, they're really useful building blocks. And we thought about it, and we realized that Outpost is actually a very useful building block. And so we built a construct um, that we call local zones, which um, we just launched the first one in Los Angeles. And, just when? Um, uh, in my keynote. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just. Just yeah, now. Just, yeah. When I say just, John, Today. I mean just. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and what that does is it allows customers, um, so all those media companies who have end users in Los Angeles that need that single digit millisecond latency but don't want to have to have a data center, 
now can run in our local zone where effectively we're taking uh, outposts and we've done some work um, to, uh, to build variants of outposts and put them in a building that we're managing. Wait, so um, you've got local data centers now? We'll, we'll have, uh, in Los Angeles, we'll have a local AZ with local data centers um, that will provide people the ability to use um, AWS. Again, same tools, same APIs, same hardware. And then that local zone in Los Angeles will be a part of the broader U.S. West Oregon region. And so it'll right. look like to them just kind of another, you know, AZ as part of the U.S. West Oregon region. So it kind of reminds me of Amazon having bookstores now after, you know, the, the e-commerce thing put a bunch of bookstores out of business. Now you've got small local data centers after, you know, the, the, the Amazon cloud kind of changed up the business model on local data centers. Well, we have, you know, as you know, we have regions, which we, a region we consider multiple um, availability zones or data centers in, in, a, in about 25 places all over the world. So we've had them in cities all over the world. And I think that part of what we're um, thinking about is that many major metro cities would like to have some amount of local AWS presence for the workloads that just can't afford the latency of the round trip to our public regions. And so we, you know, we're trying to build it in a way that works for customers and also you know, makes economic sense for us. And so this local region, I think, is a very innovative new concept that people are excited about. And I think you can expect we'll build more local regions, local zones over time. Mm. Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, has been a big part of your keynotes for a while now, mm -hmm. uh, more than a couple of years. You announced some tools, I believe it was last year, to help developers really get a sense of how they can work with AI in the cloud through camera systems and things like that. How are you advancing that? Is that one of your building blocks? And how are you advancing that this year to Amazon's advantage? Yeah, well, machine learning is um, something that virtually every company that we interact with is very excited about. And, um, you know, there, we think of machine learning as having these three layers of the stack. At that bottom layer are frameworks where the, the expert machine learning practitioners operate. And um, we have much broader support for the major frameworks than anybody else. Who, most of the other providers focus just on one framework, TensorFlow. But, you know, 90% of the machine learning expert practitioners use more than one framework. So we, we provide very broad um, coverage across the major frameworks, but the reality is there just aren't that many expert machine learning practitioners in the world today. Mm. We're, the, we're educating more and more of them all the time, but most of them hang out of the big technology companies. And so if you want machine learning to be as expansive as companies want it to be, and we believe it should be, you have to make machine learning much more accessible to everyday developers and data scientists, which is why we built SageMaker. Um, which we announced a, a couple of years ago, which is really a C-level change in the ease with which developers can build, train, tune, and deploy machine learning models. And I think that while it's pretty amazing how many thousands of companies have standardized on top of, of SageMaker, there are still so many things, in, it, you know, even between the steps of um, visualizing the data and picking the algorithm, picking the framework and training the data. And there's so many steps in between there that still are more arduous for developers and data scientists that I think you can expect us to um, continue to solve for customers. And, you know, I think that... When are we going to get that game-changing case study and how somebody has used machine learning in the cloud to give them such an advantage over their competition that everybody says, wow, 
got to do that. I think there are a lot of them. I mean, I, I think uh, you can kind of see them up and down. But I mean, I think uh, if you, I mean, just look at Intuit as an example. You know, Intuit has, um, uh, you know, they have a product that a lot of people use called TurboTax. And, uh, you know, a lot of their customers are um, small businesses or individuals. And um, saving money around tax time is a big deal. And so they have a feature in there called Expense Finder. And uh, they were able to, you know, before they were building these machine learning algorithms, and these algorithms were taking several months, you know, four, five, six months. Using SageMaker, they were able to unleash a much broader community of their developers to build algorithms. And now they, they, they have algorithms that take them a week mm. as opposed to several months. And they built something in Expense Finder that automatically uses machine learning and algorithms they've built to automatically find deductions that they should be taking that they weren't taking before and to point them out to customers that are saving customers on average $4,300 each tax season. So, and they used your tools to do that. And they use SageMaker to do yeah. that. And so you can see examples in thousands of companies now where they're using machine learning to change their businesses. And it's still relatively early days in machine learning. Um, we think people will operate at all three layers of that stack. That top layer of the stack is really those AI services that more closely mimic human cognition. So object recognition and transcription and translation and, and um, uh, you know, personalization and forecasting and chatbots and things like that. And so we have, you know, we, last year we launched at that top layer uh, a personalization service and a forecasting service, both activities that we do quite a bit of at Amazon in our consumer business that we are able to give customers the ability to leverage all that learning we've had over a couple decades. And I think you can expect that we'll continue to launch more services like that at that top layer as well. Finally, on, on the earnings call, you guys at Amazon talked about sales and marketing spend, particularly in AWS. Yeah, having an impact on margins, maybe making things a little lumpy, but it being important to invest at this stage. Clarify for me, what's changed? What is, what is it about this stage that makes it important to really step on the gas when it comes to sales and marketing? I just think that we're at the stage of adoption now in mainstream enterprises, um, you know, really all over the world, you know, with different countries a little bit further ahead than others, where companies are now thinking about their broad approach to the cloud. And we, you know, we have a pretty significant sales team um, that we, you know, these are account managers and um, uh, solutions architects and professional services and support and all those types of, of folks. And, we have a pretty significant team that we've been building over the last five years, but we were starting from zero. You know, mm. it's not like we have 30 years of having this very large enterprise field. And so we still um, have a lot of growing to do in the field to be able to... Where specifically? Everywhere? everywhere. Geographically? I would say everywhere. You know, I, th I think um, I, everywhere. I mean, outside the U.S. Um, is, is a place where we have disproportionate amount of people to add, but even in the U.S., uh, and, you know, we have a much larger enterprise business in the infrastructure cloud computing space than anybody else by a pretty large amount. And yet still, we have so many customers that we're just meeting and that want additional capabilities and support in the field that we're adding. And so, you know, it's a, I think by anyone's measure, it's a, it's, we have a very large field team, but it's a fraction of the size of what it's going to be. And so many companies are making their decisions over the next two to three years. And we want to help them make the right decisions because I think one of the things that's unique about AWS 
uh, particularly relative to other technology companies. And one of the things I think our customers um, respect most about us is that we're not really that interested in trying to build the best possible results in any one quarter or, or in this year or even next year. Yeah. We're trying to build a business that outlasts all of us. And so when you're making as important a decision as an enterprise is in what their foundational technology infrastructure is going to be, it's a really important decision. You can change it, but you don't want to have to change it. There's significant opportunity cost to do so. And so, so does that mean this is not necessarily a bullish bet on the global economy or, or even the, the cloud economy over the next couple of years, this sales and marketing expansion, that it really is about the longer term? Or, it, or is. is it I mean, I think that, you know, if, we, if, we, um, if we're as helpful as I think we can be to enterprises, um, I think we'll continue to have... Um, meaningful growth in the business, but we're really trying to build this capability to help enterprises make the right decisions over the next few years that really set them up to be successful and sustainable companies over the next 10 to 20 years. Right. Andy, thanks. It's always great to talk with you. Lots of questions. You had a lot to say, but hey, the conversation about cloud, about enterprise technology, all these political intersections also continue. Hope you enjoyed Fort Knox. I'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.